0: Welcome to Weird Studies, an arts and philosophy podcast with hosts Phil Ford and J.F. Martel. For more episodes or to support the podcast, go to weirdstudies.com. Welcome to Weird Studies. I'm J.F. Martel. In July of 2020, we released episode 77, What a Fool Believes, about the unnumbered card in the tarot deck. We said then that we'd devote a show to each of the tarot's 22 major arcana. This is the second installment in that series. For reasons neither Phil nor I fully understand, we've decided to work out of a sequence— And so, the show you're about to hear isn't about Major Arcanum number one, the Batlar, Juggler, or Magician, depending on the deck you're using, but number three, the Empress, which came up recently in our episode on M. John Harrison's The Course of the Heart. Maybe that's why we're doing it now. Who knows? I'll try to keep this brief, because at the very beginning of today's discussion, I read a passage from a book that does a good job, I think, of introducing the Empress. Suffice it to say that the tarot has been, on our respective journeys, no less important than the I Ching. But we can't talk about the tarot the way we talk about the I Ching, that is, as a wise old friend and faithful guide. The tarot has never presented itself to either of us as a wise old friend, but always rather as a dark stranger whom we can know only by her epithets and the stories that precede her. Like the empress, the tarot is, to quote Aleister Crowley, impossible to summarize for this very reason, that she continually recurs in infinitely varied form, quote. Unlike the more or less straight roads of the I Ching, the paths of the tarot are different every time you take them. They aren't secure trajectories through weird country. They fully belong to that country and share all of its qualities. Some will warn you that there is danger in taking those paths, that in doing so you risk losing your soul. But as Phil wrote recently in a Patreon exclusive, the real danger may not be that you lose your soul, but that you find it. I'm not going to insist on any supernatural or magical explanation for the power of the tarot. I wouldn't even argue, as I did for the I Ching, that it definitely works. Even after using the cards, sporadically I confess for more than three decades, I still don't really know if it does work. But I do know that it's doing something, and that it's doing it whether I believe in it or not. We hope you enjoy the show, and that if you do, you'll take a moment to check out our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash weirdstudies. So I wanted to just read a little something to start. All right. This is uh, from P.D. Uspensky's book, The Symbolism of the Tarot. A little, basically a pamphlet he wrote. Philosophy of Occultism in Pictures and Numbers. Translated and published in English in 76. Uspensky died, I think, in the 40s, 47, 47, yeah. In this book, he basically writes a little prose poem for each of the major arcana of the tarot including, of course, the third arcanum, the empress. I felt the breath of the spring, and accompanying the fragrance of violets and lilies of the valley, I heard the tender singing of elves. Rivulets murmured, the treetops rustled, the grasses whispered, innumerable birds sang in choruses and bees hummed. Everywhere I felt the breathing of joyful living nature. The sun shone tenderly and softly, "'and a little white cloud hung over the woods. "'In the midst of a green meadow where primroses bloomed, "'I saw the Empress seated on a throne "'covered with ivy and lilacs. "'A green wreath adorned her golden hair, "'and above her head shone twelve stars. "'Behind her rose two snowy wings, "'and in her hands she held a scepter. "'All around, beneath the sweet smile of the Empress, "'flowers and buds opened their dewy green leaves.' Her whole dress was covered with them, as though each newly opened flower were reflected in it, or had engraved itself thereon, and thus become part of her garment. The sign of Venus, the goddess of love, was chiseled on her marble throne. Queen of life, I said, why is it so bright and joyful all about you? Do you not know of the grey weary autumn, of the cold white winter? Do you not know of death in graveyards with black graves damp and cold? How can you smile so joyfully on the opening flowers when everything is destined to death, even that which has not yet been born? For answer, the empress looked on me still smiling, and under the influence of that smile, I suddenly felt a flower of some clear understanding open in my heart. Beautiful. So what do you make of it? What do I make of it? Well, to me, it sums up beautifully what the empress is about. We see a queen of nature. So the empress in the tarot is often, but not always portrayed in a natural setting. In the Rider-Waite deck, she's most, and this is what he's commenting on here in this book, it's the Rider-Waite deck, where the empress is seated on a throne in the midst of nature, in a field with trees in the background. She seems to be just bedecked in kind of like, vegetation, flowers, that sort of thing. And mm-hmm. um, and so it tells us something about what the, the Empress symbolizes in terms of her, the dominion she holds on nature, but also tells us about how it's a nature that includes those aspects of it that we tend to see as negative the dark the winter the autumn somehow the empress and hopefully this might happen today somehow the empress justifies all that's bad about existence Hmm. somehow in her affirmation of growth and and generation and fecundity she affirms everything that goes against that everything that negates that but we'll Hmm. see we'll see but um i just love that This character asks her a question, and she just smiles in return, and somehow that smile is the answer.
1: Hmm. It's a little bit like the Buddhist story of Mahakashyapa. This is the origin story of the Mahayana strain of Buddhism, which never happened. I feel pretty comfortable in saying this is myth, not, you know, factual recorded history. But... The idea is that there is, for the Buddha, as for Plato, kind of a secret teaching that could be only transmitted in sort of face-to-face contact. Isn't that the idea of the the secret doctrine of Plato, that it's hinted at in the Republic, but the full expression of it only happened in
0: the academy, in the oral tradition
1: of of Platonic teaching? That's not myth,
0: though. That's that's fact, as far as... uh... Uh, the consensus goes I think among right. most most scholars yeah yeah no
1: not not gainsaying that either but I think in the Mahakashapa story is certainly myth right but it's right. the same gotcha. but it's but it's the same shape of story which is the idea that there is a teaching that goes beyond the written teachings and that teaching can only be expressed in the flesh here and now at a particular place at a particular time of initiation I mean, in the story of Mahakashyapa, the assembled monks are supposed to show their understanding of the Buddha's teaching. And Mahakashyapa remains silent and twirls a flower. He's holding a flower. And the Buddha sort of anoints him. It's like, oh, you're the one who gets it.
0: Right. My true
1: successor. And it's mythic because it's basically an origin story created by Mahayana Buddhists for why there's some special secret teaching, and they're the ones that have it. That doesn't, as I say, gainsay the historical accuracy of the idea of a platonic secret teaching. I kind of like the idea of secret teachings, actually. I mean, of course I do. That's like the governing myth of esotericism, that underneath all the exoteric teachings, all the things that can be found in books, there is something alive, a logos that is kept alive in, for example, the tarot. I mean, the tarot is itself an expression of this idea of a subterranean stream of esoteric teaching. And so all of this is a way of saying that the conclusion of Aspensky's little tale is of the empress just smiling. And the smile is the answer. You know, in a way, the tarot does that every time you read it. You have your question. Aspensky's was like, what do you say to death? You and your fecundity and creation, what do you say to death? And the answer is a smile, a moment, a gesture, not something that can be written down. And likewise, the tarot presents us with a smile or a frown or a scowl or a half smile or whatever. But every time you read the cards, that's an event, an expression. It is something that happens at a particular place in time. And the revelation of the meaning of that spread, whatever it may be, is likewise a relation in time. And I guess my point is that that story kind of encapsulates what the tarot is. It's a Mona Lisa smile that manifests itself whenever you take the cards out of the box and ask a sincere question.
0: So we've decided to do a show on each of the 22 major arcana of the tarot. Again, just as a kind of primer here, a recap or an explanation for those of our listeners who weren't familiar with the tarot, the tarot has a certain number of cards which don't belong to the to the four suits and there are 22 of these. Each of these cards is unique and each has a number except for one, the fool, which we've already covered. And the Empress is the third of these cards or that's the one with the number three on it. <laughs> and, uh, it's been, uh, huh. It's of all the cards. I mean, this one really very, it really took it like between the Marseille deck, which is the oldest or like one of the oldest decks we have, of the tarot and the Rider-Waite deck, uh, there's a big difference in how the Empress is portrayed. In the Marseille deck, she's portrayed as a queen sitting on a throne. There is no obvious or overt um, association with the forces of nature or the the, the generative powers of nature. And in the Rider-Waite deck, she really finds a new dimension of meaning as she is portrayed, as I mentioned earlier, in this natural setting. And I've read different things about the Empress in preparation for this. And um, I was surprised and pleased to find that whether the writer was approaching the tarot through the Marseille deck or the Rider Waite deck or the Thoth deck, for that matter, which is the deck that Aleister Crowley designed, they came to pretty much the same conclusions as to what the Empress was all about. Uh, using different means and using different routes to get there. So that I found very, very interesting. You know, one of our key texts here, uh, at least so far, that we used it a lot in the the Fool episode, is um, the anonymously written book, Meditations on the Tarot, A Journey into Christian Hermeticism. And uh, in this book, immediately, right off the bat, the author associates the Empress with the idea of sacred magic. And he opposes the idea of sacred magic to two other forms of magic, namely personal magic and sorcery. And uh, we can maybe go into what those are, but personal magic and sorcery would be what we usually mean when we talk about magic. What he means by sacred magic is what is commonly called miracles, right? So it's a magic that is performed by a human being who has aligned his or her will with the divine will. There's this perfect symmetry or harmony of the divine and the human, and that's what generates the magic. So his example of that, one of his examples is Peter, St. Peter's miracles in the Acts of the Apostles, specifically when he heals a sick man named Ennius. And that was interesting. And then he has this whole bit where he's arguing, well, are miracles magic, right? Because in theology and traditionally, there's this really hard distinction to be made between magic, what sorcerers do, and conjurers and that sort of thing, and what saints do. But the author of Meditations on the Tarot says, no, All of it is magic. It's just that one magic is aligned with the will of the divine will and other forms of magic are ways of trying to impose an all too human will on the world. So we have to be able to talk about miracles in terms of their magical nature. And that in itself is really interesting. But that's getting away from the point I was trying to make here, which is that... Although this is a point that I want to return to. Yes, me too. i do I. bookmark this one. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But the point was simply that what the author of meditation sees in sacred magic is precisely the generative power of creation itself the power of creation to bring anything into being the power of creation to keep creating and uh, that is the power or dominion of the empress the empress is of the three tiers of generation that he he mar- demarcates the generator the generant and the generated. The empress is the generant, the means by which things come into being, the way, Mm -hmm. the vessel in which things emerge. So the generator would be, in his Christian parlance, the generator would be the Holy Spirit. The generant would be the Holy Virgin, the vessel and channel by which things are manifest. And then the generated would be the God-man, the Christ, which is the goal of all magicians. So if you were to create... A modern tarot using modern archetypes, you might want to call the empress something like medium, Hmm. you know, the channel, the means of creation. And that may sound like a subordinate role, but it's actually the key role in a sense, because it is it is the way, the door, the gate of heaven, the gates through which things must pass to become manifest.
1: I mean, it's the human if yeah. you say, what is the point of the empress? Ask yourself, what is the point of a person? What is the point of you? Right. You know, in case our listeners are like, oh, shit, Christianity, because this is a Christian book. It's a book of Christian mysticism, Catholic mysticism, particularly. And
0: tarot, tarot comes from a Christian <laughs> civilization, yeah. too. Yeah. S-
1: yeah. Although there are many, 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 many decks that have dechristianized the tarot, beginning with Crowley Harris's Thoth tarot. I want to emphasize, actually, this is an idea that came up recently in our show on the I Ching. Mm -hmm. When we were talking about that basic archetypal split between the creative and the receptive, all solid lines, all broken lines. And, you know, it's possible to gender the shit out of that which the Confucian or Neo-Confucian writers of the Ten Wings were apt to do where yin becomes feminine and yang becomes masculine and therefore yin has to be subordinated to yang Um, an aspect of the I Ching that I think prevents a lot of modern Westerners from feeling quite comfortable with it this actually came up in the Weird Studies subreddit but I think that your conversation about that Fundamental primordial split between the creative and the receptive was really on point. That it's like, let's get back to the basic meanings here heaven and earth. Yeah. You know, yin, broken lines, that's earth. Yang, solid lines, that's heaven. But the sage is the one, or, you know, the person using the I Ching is a person, a human being who is walking between heaven and earth. And that is the role of divination. It occupies that middle position. It is the role of the human being to occupy that middle position. You know, you can kind of think one, I think this is a rather traditional map of the human in relation to the cosmos, is of three overlapping circles such that the top circle and the second to top circle overlap one another and the second to top or the middle circle and the bottom circle overlap one another. But the top circle and the bottom circle do not overlap one another. If you can visualize something Venn diagram-ish along those lines, then it's the middle circle that mediates between the upper and the lower, between heaven and earth, between if you like, our earthly nature and our spiritual nature. That's one way of thinking about it. Patrick Harper writes about this in one of his books. I think his Secret Tradition of the Soul, which is a wonderful, wonderful book. Um, And I think maybe this Hillman might also talk about this. It's very easy for us to spiritualize ourselves such that we identify with what is higher and transcendent and heavenly and that is the spiritual dimension, but we should not neglect the dimension of soul. And soul and spirit, although we use them in common language interchangeably, they're not the same thing. The spirit is that which inhabits that supernal realm. It goes up. Yeah. It goes up. And then there's the earthly realm, which goes down all the way to the very roots of the mountains. But it is the all-important position of the soul which is a plural, a multiple entity whose identity is given by its marshalling of higher and lower. And it also says something about our task as human beings, that we can identify with a lower self or a higher self, or we don't have to choose. We can do the alchemical work of integration, of putting all these different things together. This, to me, is also something that the tarot is about. I said a moment ago that I think divination occupies that middle zone, that zone of the human. Divination is the most human of actions. Divination, man, that is like the human activity, ne plus ultra.
0: Yeah, that's true. And,
1: and that activity of mediating and integrating is the work we do in using the tarot. And it's also the work of the empress.
0: Yeah. There's a nice passage in Crowley's book on the tarot, the book of Thoth. You quoted this in an exchange we had recently. I thought it was very important to bring up about the Empress card. He writes, it is impossible to summarize the meanings of the symbol of the woman for this very reason that she continually recurs in infinitely varied form. And of course, here again, we have, you know, the gendering, which is, um, I agree. Problematic if we were to uh, reduce the people we know and the people we encounter in life to their archetypal meanings based on their physiology or their biology, that would be very bad. But just sticking with, for the moment, for the sake of argument, with the distinction of yin and yang in terms of male, female, or masculine, feminine, in the most abstract possible way. What he's saying here is that one half of reality cannot be summarized or captured semiotically precisely because it is in itself variation. It is differentiation in itself. And this is what, for Crowley, the empress represents. He says that the empress is the feminine or the yin, let's say, in its most general form. It is the card that most generally summarizes what can't be summarized, which is the pluriform itself, the many, the soul, the soul, not as a unit, but as a plurality, as a, like, like the demon in the New Testament says, our name is legion, right? The soul mm. is a legion. It's a crowd. <laughs> and I'm uh, a whole damn town. Exactly.
1: <laughs> it's a Twin Peaks reference.
0: Yeah. Uh, if we're going to be talking about the Empress, we're talking about that part of reality the part of reality which is always different every time you look at it which is sh- ever shifting like nature which changes and which deceives when it looks like it's dying it's being born when it looks like it's being born it's dying and mm. and to me the the empress really that's what we're talking about when we talk about the yin it's not just how the yang mind reduces the yin that's the problem When you approach the yin and yang from a yang perspective, then the yin just becomes darkness, unknowability, unknown, hidden, concealed, weak, passive, all the terms that are dangerous, dangerous. Yeah. yeah, Unpredictable. It becomes all the things that someone who's got a yang inflation.
1: Yeah. uh, Or a yang erection
0: would think it is. (laughs) When you approach the yin from the perspective of yin, or maybe even from a, just a neutral, open perspective, it becomes the pluriform, the creative, uh, mm. ironically, because the creative is often the name of yang. And the uh, the manifest or the manifesting or the the potential. And that is an essential part of the equation of nature. And if mm. he, I think there's a way of looking at yin and yang, even if you want to retain the distinction masculine-feminine, there's a way of doing that, which I don't think necessarily imports all of the patriarchal problems that, that, that traditionally entails. Yeah.
1: Okay. There's a couple of different directions I could go in. I could either continue talking about gender. Okay. I am going to stick with gender because it's important that we come to some understanding of gender that is not beholden to the very limiting and binaristic way that we tend to talk about gender, I feel that you can learn a lot about gender in the most capacious, open, creative way by doing divination with the tarot or with the I Ching, which themselves revolve around a kind of gendered polarity. But it might take me a moment to say what I mean by that. Like, okay, I want to go back to... Something you said a moment ago, we are all of us legion, right? I'm a whole damn town. That's something Andy says in Twin Peaks. The inner parliament, the multiplicity of selves that we comprise, some of those selves you can kind of think of as masculine. And let's leave aside what we mean by masculine assign it something abstract, polarity. Some of them are solid lines and some of them are broken lines. And you can say, well, what is feminine and what is masculine is dictated entirely by patriarchy, by society. The expression and especially the toxic expression of masculinity and femininity I can give you an example. Like, just go to Target. Like, oh, my God, having kids makes you realize this hardcore. Go to Target and go down the toy aisle. You instantly, from across the store, you know which one is the boys' aisle and which one is the girls' aisle. Because the girls, it's all pink and purple. And the boys is all fucking camo and black. Yeah. Or blue. No, camo. (laughs) I'm in the Midwest, man. All right. (laughs) So, you know, that is an expression of a certain set of gendered ideas that are very American, like the idea of camo, for example. It's just like, yes, because men hunt and kill things and, you know, blah, blah, blah. This is very culturally mediated. There's problems with it. We don't need to go into that because, you know, big fucking surprise, right? Yeah. Um, and you can see a lot of the toxicity of American politics. To me, a lot of it can be understood not only in terms of race, which it obviously can be and should be, but also in terms of gender, which is like you see kind of people with gender poisoning, with archetype poisoning, people who have been completely possessed by a kind of degraded version of an archetype as it has been generated in a popular culture. And they identify solely with that thing. And then that's how you end up with neo-fascist paramilitaries in their fucking camo with their tactical gear, intimidating protesters. And I'm sure they're going to show up at the ballot boxes and try and intimidate voters as well, following from the authoritarian playbook you see these guys who are so invested in what they take to be masculinity, and which, of course, casts a shadow. For example, in all of the stories of anti-gay preachers who end up being caught getting a blowjob in a bathroom from some guy, you know? It's just like, there's nothing wrong with getting a blowjob from a guy in a bathroom, don't get me wrong. (laughs) (laughs) But being a hypocrite and having built your whole life around a certain kind of archetype of masculinity as it is in this degenerated form, this is going to cast a shadow. Maybe the reason why you were so possessed by that archetype is because you have parts of yourself you can't accept and don't understand. And you want to put everything in terms of like something I can understand. I understand what a masculine person is. I'm going to be that thing. And this poisons all discussions of gender, because every time you say masculine or feminine, people think, oh, you mean like that shit and target or, you know, whatever. No, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about energies that are almost beyond verbalization. What masculine and feminine are is a mystery, an arcanum. And whatever they are, I think is actually beautifully symbolized by many cards in the tarot. Like it's a distributed entity what it is in itself is an arcanum, a mystery, but it manifests sort of like, you know, a white light shone through a prism and it starts breaking into different colors, different flavors, different aspects of the feminine, the high priestess, the empress, the moon. And I love this way of thinking about it. It's a way that the tarot can mediate these archetypes without forcing us to be stuck in any unitary idea of them. But that is the only way to me to do justice to the mystery of gender because what we have to understand in ourselves, I believe, is ourselves as an infinitely complicated layering of these energies. The different hexagrams, not any particular hexagram in the I Ching, just any of them, any of them except for the first two, the, you know, all solid and all broken. Hexagrams three through 64, all of them are some array of broken and solid some arrangement, right? Mm. And that's, to me, a pretty good figure for at least how I understand gender to be, that we are, each of us, layered multiplicities of broken and solid lines, these energies of masculine and feminine that are prisming into our existence through culture, through language, through personal identity. But the tarot and the I Ching But I think especially the tarot teaches us that these are elements, these are ingredients that combine in a multiple of ways. So I feel that it would be easy to look at the binary gendering in the tarot and say, oof, I don't like that, because we know that there are gender creatives, people for whom gender is not the law. It is not something they are forced into. That is not something that is given. It is something that can become a part of personal becoming, an unfolding of a true self into something that doesn't fall into masculine and feminine archetypes. It doesn't fall into the camo and pink-blue aisles at Target, right? But to me, that creativity, that possibility, and when I say creativity, I mean creative in the empress sense of like the full expression of all that is possible in this universe... That creativity is not limited by these polarities, these abstract energies of yin and yang, of feminine and masculine. It is those energies in their infinite combinations, combinations that pertain to every instant of consciousness, every moment of your experience is a layered sandwich of these different aspects. It is that fundamental binary Distinction that underwrites, that permits the infinite plurality of gender expressions. And I guess that's kind of what I wanted to express because I think it's important because these old symbols continue to have validity. There's nothing wrong with the old symbols, particularly those of the Marseille deck, because those symbols do not limit you to one role or another. They permit the infinite expression of selves.
0: Let's go back to the idea of sacred magic, because... um, Indeed. Yeah. So... Can I just say how much I fucking love this book, Meditations on the Tarot? Agreed. And one of the things I love about this book is, although it is all about Christian Hermeticism, it is Christian Hermeticism. So what it does is it it does a lot to de-dogmatize a particular tradition of uh, Christian practice and belief in that it equates Christianity with magic. It says that Christianity, this is what's been forgotten, right? Because it's become politics or whatever it is now. Christianity is first and foremost a magical practice. In his chapter on the Empress, he says at one point that the sacraments that one participates in 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 a traditional Orthodox Christian context are themselves not... Just as Christians are told, miracles of God that are kind of represented or enacted by priests, but magical processes performed by priests as magicians. A couple of years ago, my uh, good friend of mine, uh, his father passed away and his father, who was an atheist most of his life, at the end of his life became a, uh, one of those traditionalist Catholics who like go to Latin mass stuff, the Tridentine mass. And so he had the full Requiem Mass as his funeral. And uh, my friend is himself an atheist and had to manage this whole thing for his father. So had to deal with the, with this particular parish that is ultra traditional and whatnot. And uh, of course, had to bring his daughter to the funeral. And his daughter, who's never been in a church before, at one point turned to him and said, uh, 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 who's the sorcerer <laughs> like where did, she called him a sorcerer because to him sorcier in French like uh, a sorcerer because this person was obviously a sorcerer there was nothing in her mind no other points of reference other than what she'd seen in like cartoons about magic this is what was going on she was suddenly in a kind of Harry Potter world with like wizards yeah. doing shit and he said well she's, he's not a sorcerer he's a priest but if you read the meditation of the tarot, no, she was right. He's a sorcerer. And the whatever power Christianity has comes from the fact that it's a magical process, first and foremost. And my own shtick has been to say that all religion is art, whether it's Christianity or any other religion, it reduces to its aesthetics. Because if you take any religion you care to think of and you remove from it the aesthetic elements, namely liturgical or poetic or theatrical elements, uh, narrative, fictions or myths, Uh, dance painting uh, sculpting if you remove all those things from a religion you literally have nothing left but a guy telling you what to do with your life and you don't need religion for those people to exist so the the medium specificity of religion is art itself Mm, and um, that is the same thing as saying that it's magic because as we've discussed in multiple episodes Magic and art are very, very close. I know that Lionel Snell draws a distinction between the two, but I think you can make an argument that they are, in fact, at worst, two faces of the same coin. Hmm. I mean, of course, in practical terms, like it's not the same thing to make a painting and to do a, a spell for a particular effect. But if you approach magic from the point of view of the author of Meditations on the Tarot, where he makes a very clear distinction between personal magic, which is a means and ends magic that has a particular worldly goal, and the sacred magic that is basically the uniting of the human and the divine will to create something new and something good, then you can see how maybe art is more magical than it can be made out to be, like sometimes. But what's interesting is that this discussion of whether miracles, what Christians call miracles, are actually deep down just magic, but magic of a particular sort. And he uses the example of St. Peter, who uh, heals a man, tells him to get up and make his bed, and the man gets up and is healed. And he says that, you know, he says, Jesus Christ has healed you. And so that's been the justification all along for priests and theologians to say, see, it wasn't Peter that healed the man. It was Jesus through Peter. But what the author of the meditations points out is that, well, Peter had to be there for that to happen. Yeah. Why didn't Jesus just
1: do it himself then? Yeah.
0: Why didn't the guy get sick to begin with? Yeah. (laughs) Like, so (laughs) Peter needs to be there. So Peter must be defined as a kind of magician. And interestingly, there's a great episode in the Acts of the Apostles where Peter has a, an all-out fucking wizard battle against a magician named Simon Magus, who is traditionally seen as one of the key figures of Gnosticism. Simon Magus was a traveling magician who uh, performed miracles or feats of incredible wizardry to prove his divinity, his divine nature. And Peter has a battle royale against this guy. And then in that context, in that story... I like story, to imagine
1: it was a, actually a dance battle.
0: Well, it's actually, I think it's a levitation thing, where I think I think Seven Magus levitates and then Peter makes him fall or something like that. It's a sick dance move. Yeah, it is. <laughs> um, but the point is that here in that scene, you have this distinction between personal magic or sorcery and divine magic. In the context of that particular Christian story, it's basically a reiteration of the earlier Old Testament story of Moses versus the magicians in Egypt, right? Where Moses, if you care to see him as a wizard of sorts, proves that he's a better wizard than the magicians of the Pharaoh by responding to their cheap tricks with like plagues of locusts and shit parting the sea and doing all kinds of, with a fucking staff. Like Moses has a staff and he's like doing this magic shit with his staff. So he's like Gandalf. I so, would like
1: to point out, by the way, that the African-American magical tradition is represented in a really interesting grimoire. I hope we do sometime. The long lost seventh, eighth, and ninth books of Moses looks at Moses straight up as a magician of tremendous power. Yeah. Yeah. So there's a strong folk magic tradition that looks at Moses, not as an august figure of religion, but as a figure of sorcery.
0: Exactly. The same could be said about uh, King Solomon, right? The Book of Solomon is a famous medieval grimoire. So to get back to... so, But what I thought was interesting is just that Peter is battling it out with Simon Magus. But the thing is, and this is one of those little rifts you find in the story, is that Peter's former name, before Jesus called him Peter, was Simon So you could interpret that scene as two sides of the magician himself, Mm. Peter and Simon being the same magician and the two serpents, the serpent of sacred magic and the serpent of personal magic intertwining almost like a caduceus and forming a full person because a full person is both... Interested, I guess, in finding out what really matters in life, but also invested in what matters to them in life so that you don't have necessarily a kind of like divine satanic demarcation to impose between personal and sacred magic, but more of like even the most personal magic can be at some level divine or at least every at least as Lionel Snell says, you start off wanting to become rich And you get into magic in order to, let's say, become wealthy. But the real magic trick in the end is that you transcend your need of wealth, right? It's that you don't need money anymore because you've practiced magic. So you move from a personal sorcerous means and ends kind of mentality into a mentality where you are united with the divine. And all I mean by that is that you have transcended worldly concerns that were limiting you in the past.
1: Yeah, it's it gets complicated because, okay, it's like a little bit of recap of what Anonymous is saying in this chapter on the empress. He focuses on four particular symbols that are very pronounced in the Marseille tarot. We have a shield with an eagle on it. That's one symbol. There's the crown that the empress wears. There's the rod in her hand, the staff in her hand. And there's the throne that she's seated upon. And some of those are retained in later tarot, some of them aren't. But for Anonymous, this is absolutely to the point, because each of those symbols tells you something different about sacred magic. The crown is the ordination from God. Basically, it's the legitimacy of magic. And the idea of sacred magic here in this book is that the only magic that is sacred is that which is ordained, that is permitted, that is in line with the will of God. And if that sounds over-Christian to those of our listeners who are not Christian, one of the things I want to say in our conversation is that basically what Anonymous is saying here is pretty much exactly what Alistair Crowley is saying when he talks about magic done In consultation with or expressing the Holy Guardian Angel. Yeah. You know, Alistair Crowley liked to say that any magic that is not engaged in the knowledge and conversation of the Holy Guardian Angel is black magic. That the Holy Guardian Angel represents the evolution of the human in a straight line upwards. Any other path is a deviation from the path in his black magic. And a lot of people don't know that about Crowley, but he actually was pretty censorious about what he considered to be black magic, which is egoistic magic. What he called the Black Brothers are the magicians who, as he put it, shut themselves up, who lock themselves away from the spiritual influences of something higher, of something true. And for Crowley, the holy guardian angel is the truest thing going. Yeah, you know, the black brother is somebody who is relying strictly on his or her own power, their own decision about like what they want, right? Where magic is as Anonymous says, the act of taking. He talks a lot in this chapter about the tree of life and he's like, "Okay, so it says in the Bible that there's a angel with a flaming sword who's guarding the tree of life so that nobody can reach out and take its fruit." And Anonymous points out, he's like, doesn't say anything about like how you shouldn't be around the tree. It just says you shouldn't reach out and take. That's the thing. And for Crowley, as for Anonymous, it's the reaching out and taking, arrogating to yourself something that is not yours. That is not yours to take. The only licit magic is the magic that exists when your will lines up with the capital W will. And I'm using again Crowley speak, you know, the, the the capital W will, doing your true will. I mean, for Crowley, that is magic, pure and simple, is doing your true will. And the true will is the union of your will, your free will, with that of the Holy Guardian Angel. But substitute the word. God for Holy Guardian Angel, and you have exactly what Anonymous is saying.
0: Yeah. And so course. the
1: crown on the Marseille Tarot Empress is the symbol of that. Authorization makes it sound a little too authoritative, but like that harmony. harmonization. Harmonies, of yeah. Harmony, yeah. yeah. The harmonization of your will and the will. And... I think that's pretty goddamn important. One thing I, that occurred to me while I was reading this reminded me of Arthur Machen, of the white people. This is going back all the way to episode three or four, whenever we did that episode, mm-hmm. um, early. One of the things we talked a lot about is like, okay, in that story, Ambrose keeps banging on about sin, but like, what is sin? And the closest we get to a succinct answer to that is the taking of heaven by storm. Yeah. That the reason the little girl who composes the green book. The reason that she is wicked is even in her innocence of not really knowing what she's doing is that she is obtaining the ecstasy of the devils and the saints, but she's obtaining it by reaching out and taking it, taking heaven by storm, like not out of a sense of like a subordination, or eh, even the, the word subordination is wrong, but like again, harmonization of yourself of what is lower and what is higher, what is above and what is below that's the maxim of Hermeticism. Let what is above be what is below. If you're not doing that, you're engaging in black magic, and that is, I think, what Ambrose is talking about when he means sin, yeah. And so, like. I keep going back to this. This is a book of Christian mysticism, but it is the best fucking book on mysticism I think I've ever read because it's talking about things. It's like effortlessly you can bring other mystical traditions or other religious traditions, other magical traditions into it. And, and it does. all makes sense. He does, and he himself. does. Yeah, 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 yeah. And it all makes perfect sense. Yeah. So anyway, I'm sorry, I'm going off a little bit just about the crown and I haven't even gotten to the other things that make sacred magic, sacred magic. But I feel of all of them, maybe the crown is the most important.
0: Yeah, well, the scepter and the shield are important, too, and can be summarized fairly briefly. We can go into more depth, perhaps. But the eagle, for him, for the uh, the author, represents the goal of sacred magic. And uh, in discussing the eagle, he brings up Joséphine Péladin, who's a famous French occultist of the 19th century. He says, Péladin defined magic as the art of sublimation of man. No other formula is superior to his. This is exactly the emblem or aim of magic, if one understands by sublimation of man that of human nature. Piladin had a very profound understanding of the emblem of magic, the shield with the eagle in flight. All his works bear witness to this. Together they represent a magnificent flight. They aim, as a whole and each taken individually, at the ideal of the sublimation of human nature. It is because Piladin bore the emblem of magic, the flying eagle, that this is so. Isn't it to have the emblem of magic before one's eyes that one is invited, quote, to throw the eagles of one's desires to the wind? Because happiness, quote, raised to the level of an ideal, freed from the negative aspects of oneself and of things is the sole triumph of the world. So the eagle represents that moment of transcendence that sacred magic aims for, the point where your personal will becomes united and therefore it transcends itself through the uh, true will. The Divine Will yeah, so the Eagle is a marker of the goal you 're using worldly means to get beyond the world or to a deeper or more supernal level of the world. And then the scepter, of course, is the power by which you do this, the means by which you do this. Her scepter represents her. her, See, this is why the empress is also, quote unquote, a masculine card, because the scepter being a phallic symbol represents the force with which generation will occur. You can't completely reduce anything in the world to one or the other of the energies. They're always a mixture. And I think that the scepter is the solid line in this particular hexagram. The scepter is kind of surmounted by a kind of a globe, which is comprised of two cups, one and the other in a sense it represents the holy grail
1: there's a kind of an equator like a band running around it and anonymous's point is that's actually the point of union of two cups one pointing down and the other
0: pointing up yeah of the heaven and earth right the Mm -hmm. two great domes Uh, exactly and so if you take all these four symbols together we've covered three so far which one are we missing the throne. The throne, right. The throne. Yeah. The throne. The place, yeah.
1: which he, Anonymous holds to be the place of magic. And by place, he means something almost like the dharmakaya, the body, you know, the dharma body. Yeah. This is on page 65. He says, I've defined the throne as the role of sacred magic in the world and its history. But then he goes on to say, one could equally say that it is the phenomenon of the whole of sacred magic as it is manifested itself as it is manifesting itself, and as it will manifest itself in the history of mankind. It is its historical body which reveals its soul and spirit. By body, I mean that which makes possible direct action in the world of facts. Thus, the arsenal or store of magical formulae and gestures which one uses in the practical exercise of sacred magic are part of its body. The rituals of its universal operations destined to serve the whole of mankind and transcending space and time, i.e. the seven sacraments of the universal church, insofar as they are rituals, are equally part of its body. Then those who have the mission or the ability to perpetuate the tradition of sacred magic are likewise part of it. This body is like a tree, which has a certain number of branches— which bear many leaves, but whose roots are in heaven and whose top is turned downwards. It has only one trunk and a sap which nourishes and vivifies all its branches with their innumerable leaves. Beautiful, beautiful stuff. And the body of magic, I think, is what he holds the throne to represent.
0: Well, the throne is a, uh, what is the word, a quaternal symbol? The throne always has four corners. It's a square, right? And a cube that a ruler sits upon. And so it has uh, connotations with manifestation, with that which mm. is established and that upon which the future will establish itself. And so, again, the throne could be seen as a solid line in this, if we were to translate this into a hexagram, as the, the foundation upon which magic uh, occurs, It's something
1: interesting that Anonymous points out and that many later tarots, I'm I'm relying upon the many tarot cards that our assistant Meredith was able to turn up, the many later cards follow this idea that the back of the throne Like, so in the Marseille deck, the Empress is seated upon a throne and you can kind of see the back and it almost looks a little soft and rounded. Yeah. Almost like she's sitting in like a velvet armchair or something. But a lot of people look at those soft, rounded protuberances behind her back as wings. And picking up on the eagle on the shield and seeing the Empress herself as an emblem of that winged form. Now, Anonymous likes that idea. And he's like, well, what if we imagine... The back of a chair. It's like, it's like a chair, but it's also like wings. So we could imagine petrified wings. Yeah. And he's like, what is sacred magic if not the magic by which the petrified wings begin to move? Right. Right. Which is a beautiful image of that generative quality of the empress on which every rendering of the empress depends.
0: That reminds me of a line from Luke. The stones themselves will cry out. Mm. It's also a nice way to evoke the, uh, the, I guess, for lack of a better term, the kind of uh, animism of magic where the petrified wings, my virtue of being wings are nevertheless wings. Like even an image of wings has wingedness about it. There is something of flight, even in just a representation of wings, a statue with wings flies in a sense. Right. Um, And that goes to our aesthetic thing that, Mm -hmm. um, that, uh, Symbolism works through the aesthetic and the aesthetic obliterates any type of like over literal insistence that this or that needs to happen in this or that way. Like petrified wings taking flight is an image of how symbols are themselves as real as the things that they, I guess, ostensibly kind of represent. A winged statue in a sense is even more real than a bird, because it is Hmm. showing us what flight is, whereas with the bird, it's too easy to just reduce flight to, oh, the one occasion of the bird. It's the statue of the bird that shows us what a bird is, that shows us the singularity of the bird and the singularity of flight.
1: Dude, you have to read Piranesi. We just recorded an extra where I went off about Susanna Clark's new novel, Piranesi, and there's an important passage in that that basically says exactly what you just said. So, boom. Wow, much better. You need, I, I need hope. to read that motherfucking book anyway. I will, I will. But um, that,
0: that, that's an interesting. Can I follow a tangent here? Yeah, because one of the things that I found myself meditating on as I studied this arcanum, read the texts, is in a sense, this is another way of seeing the whole black and white magic thing from a non-magical perspective. Like, you know how... These things refract on multiple levels. So what we've been talking about when Crowley talks about black magic as opposed to, I guess, the white magic of the holy guardian angel, you can see that, I think, in modern metaphysics. I've often on this show, and this has been kind of a joke, right, that I don't like idealism. But I would like to put forward an idea here that maybe will make sense of my aversion to that particular way of thinking. And I'm not saying that this, what I'm going to say now, summarizes the whole thing and puts the matter to rest. I'm just saying that this is one way I'm looking at it. To me, the idea of the mother, the empress, mater in Latin, it's etymologically connected to the word we use, the modern word matter, which is actually not just a modern word, goes way back. Matter is a feminine, for lack of a better term, a yin idea. Okay, and when people have tried to figure out what went wrong in modernity, why we ended up in the situation we are in, they will often blame materialism. And they'll say materialism is part and parcel of a cultural process by which we have repressed the feminine, tried to control it, tried to contain it and therefore i've ended up in our overly uh, masculine and uh, patriarchal modern world. Now that i know that this is opening all kinds of <laughs> issues because the old world was very patriarchal and all that, but that is a line in the weirdosphere you'll hear that that the loss of the feminine, the repression of the feminine is a problem of the modern world and it's a problem that goes back to christianity and to all the old religions that were patriarchal. Sometimes you'll hear the suggestion that at one time civilization was matriarchal I agree with all that. I think that the feminine is repressed and I think that women are oppressed since the beginning of history. And I think I do agree also that modern materialism was another way in which men decided to reinterpret nature and align it with their own image of themselves. I agree that that's, I think that's true, but I think that what we call materialism is actually a reaction to the self-revelation of something that put the lie to all the patriarchies of the past. Namely, what we call the birth of modern science, for me, was the discovery of matter. The discovery that matter existed whether we exist, whether or not we existed. That matter was something that was there. That matter was impossible to define scientifically. Because matter can only be perceived through its manifestations. In a sense, matter is precisely what Crowley calls woman in that passage. It's infinitely varied. And yet it asserts its existence to Galileo and the founders of modern science in a way that they cannot ignore it anymore. The moon is not just the construct that was put there by a masculine god for men to figure out. The moon is a mottled peach floating in the sky. It's weird. It's dusty. It's bumpy. It's material. It's unknowable. It's something that one would need to go there and explore in, other, in order to know. It's not and it something. Has an,
1: and it has an aesthetic dimension that you just sort of alluded to. Exactly. Precisely by virtue of it being
0: material. Exactly. Whenever we talk about things that are material, we can only talk about them in terms of difference. I can say it's slimy. It's wet. It's dry. It's hard. It's soft. It's always a relative term that I need to use. It's softer than the last thing I touched. It's harder than the last thing. You know, it's like it's all these aesthetic terms. How does it feel to me? But that material is the essence of modern science. So I think that what we call materialism is actually an attempt to ignore that, to categorize that, to get that under control, to tame it. And yet it is itself the revelation of matter that defines us as moderns. That's Mm -hmm. why sometimes in our conversations, we've said things, I think that's one of the reasons we've said it, is that it's not so much that we should stop being modern, but we aren't modern enough. We haven't yet come to terms with the revelation that birthed modernity. We haven't come to terms with the assertion of the mysterious, undefinable substance of reality that we began to measure Uh, in the Renaissance or in the late Middle Ages. And and idealism is just one more way to reduce things to the way they look to us. An idealist will say, well, the moon doesn't exist in itself. The moon is an idea in the mind of God, which I perceive as such. And therefore, there's nothing behind. There's no dark side of the moon, so Mm -hmm. long as there's no one to go and look. If someone were to go around the moon, then there would be a dark side of the moon cut it any way you want. That's what idealism always boils down to. It's a reduction of this strange, slimy, unknowable substance that we call matter to ideas. And Mm idealism has often been seen as the way out of materialism. But in fact, I think you could make an argument that idealism could be the way to finally bury it. Whereas in fact, what we need is a kind of embrace of the real implications of a materialist universe. Realism, perhaps. A type of realism, yeah, absolutely. That phase of the conversation, we're talking about the middle position.
1: Perhaps that realist position would be the middle position, where grounded in matter, yet also tending towards ideas, towards the etherealized dimension of existence, which is important as well, you know? Anonymous says that the simple definition of magic is the... Um, I'm going to quote it instead of trying to remember it. Yeah, he, he says, All magic, including sorcery, is the putting into practice of this, that the subtle rules the dense. Force, matter, consciousness, force, and the superconscious or divine consciousness. It is the latter rulership that the empress symbolizes, Her crown, scepter, and shield are the three instruments of the exercise of this power. Um, I don't think it's quite as unidirectional as all that, that it's just like, you know, the upper rules the lower. Because we've talked on this show a bunch of times about how upper and lower, above and below in that hermetic scheme, as above, so below doesn't just mean below better get its shit together and conform to above.
0: It also means as below, so above. Right. Yeah,
1: exactly. Yeah. And this gets back to something that you were saying when you were talking about Lionel's six point path of magic that starts off. I want to become rich, famous, powerful, etc., wealthy, low magic goals, and then ends up reaching a point where in order to be a magician, you need to not care about any of that shit. Um, yeah. This is actually why I think that magic, although extremely perilous, potentially Really perilous and something that Anonymous goes into. The problem with personal magic, he says, among other things, is that if it's just you deciding what you're going to do and not you aligning your will with you know, the divine, the above, whatever we want to call it, your holy guardian angel, then you're in for a world of hurt. And I kind of like that because uh, this is something we've also done a lot on the show is trying to express why magic is super valuable at the same time as trying to not front about how treacherous or dangerous or problematic, to use that very contemporary word, how problematic it can be. And the answer that Anonymous comes up with is like, magic is fine, fine and dandy, so long as it is sacred magic. I agree. Um, That means, however, that that is going to greatly limit what you're going to do as a magician. And it takes an enormous amount of, um, I think, spiritual development to get to the point of even being able to understand, like, how is it that you align yourself with um, the divine or whatever we're calling it? But... I guess my feeling is, and I'm echoing the intention of that passage of Lionel's that you quoted, is he wants to say that, yes, you can start off with low magical aims and yet end up, he doesn't say in sacred magic, but what Anonymous is calling sacred magic. Yeah. You can start in the mire, in the muck, in the shit, and somehow, like Andy Dufresne crawling a mile through shit and coming out clean, this is something we talked about on the show a lot, like the decadent thing. How is it that by going down into the sewer, plunging into the depths of decadence, you somehow become a saint? Yeah. You know, it's, you said repeatedly, that's the move of the late 19th century decadence to somehow end up being like, you know, what happened to Franz Liszt, him being this kind of hypersexualized, very loose and vaguely diabolical figure who ends up being an abbé of the church. I remember you saying, well, that's the move, right? Yeah. This is some left-hand path shit here. But this is the idea of like, you know, through profanation, you end up in holiness. And I think that while that's a dangerous game to play, the left-hand path is a dangerous path. And I don't recommend it, and I haven't walked it myself, but... Nevertheless, I see the point of it because it's the idea that uh, actually, let me let me find another passage to quote from Meditations on the Tarot. Okay, so this represents Anonymous's point of view where he's basically, I think, pretty much coming down on the idea of like what is above is telling what is below what to do. And he dislikes what he calls personal or usurpatory magic for being the merely human, coming out of merely human desires, therefore not having anything to do with that kind of harmony of above and below. And he says actually personal magic can serve the good. But then he says sacred magic can do nothing but serve the good. And I thought that was interesting. I I think that's an important wrinkle to bring up. But on page 58, he talks about how in sacred magic you begin up high with what is above, and in this manner you act upon what is below, the realm of matter, or the realm of our everyday affairs. He writes, Sacred or divine magic is the putting into practice of mystical revelation. The master revealed to Peter what he had to do, and the master, of course, is Jesus. The master revealed to Peter what he had to do, inwardly and outwardly, in order to hear Aeneas in Lydda. It is here that the order of things in sacred magic is given. Firstly, real contact with the divine or mysticism. Then the taking into consciousness of this contact, which is gnosis. And lastly, the putting into operation or execution of that which mystical revelation is made known as being the task to accomplish and the method to follow. So it's going from mystical revelation to practical activity in the world. From the authorization of the crown to the practical action in the affairs of human beings of the scepter. Personal or usurpatory magic follows, in contrast, the reverse order. Here, it is the magician himself who studies occult theory and decides when and how to put it into practice. If he does so following the advice given by a master in magic, someone who has experimented in magic more than he has, the principle remains the same. It is always the human personality who decides the what and the how. And... While he does say, importantly, that personal magic can serve the good, he definitely is favoring the from above to below trajectory as opposed to the from below to above. But to me, if we're keeping things symmetrical, and I do like to keep things symmetrical between above and below, to me, it reminds me of that line from Twin Peaks, Fire Walk With Me, when actually it's not aligned in the completed movie. It's in one of the scenes that was cut and then added into a DVD release called The Missing Pieces. And it was an extended version of the scene above a convenience store that we see all the supernatural entities of Twin Peaks having their meeting. And the man from another place at one point says, "'Going up and down, intercourse between the two worlds.'" And that, to me, that line, going up and down, intercourse between the two worlds, expresses the action of the sorcerer, the low-minded, gains oriented magician who just wants wealth and power. Stage one of Lionel's six-part outline starts with matter, with material, with the things of this world. But those things can be, as it were, a ladder to heaven. You go up... You know, even starting with the most base of desires, if you stay with it, can lead you somewhere higher, can lead you perhaps to the domain of sacred. And likewise, you go from up to down, from above to below. But that's a kind of a more the the approach of the mystic. This is, for example, in Zen Buddhism, we're like, we don't want to fuck around with like a bunch of rituals and like tools and things. And I mean, like, you know, Zen ceremonies are extremely stark where everything is from the point of view of the absolute. You sit in silence and you dwell at least ideally in the absolute, whether you ever do or not, of course, is another matter. But that is what you're aiming at. You are aiming at direct operation on that which is above. But I like to think, at least in my own life, in my own spiritual development, such as it is, That it has actually been going up and down, intercourse between the two worlds, that it is that you act magically upon the things of the world, for example, in consulting the tarot, and yet that can lead you to above. And you start off, you know, in meditation, in mystical practice with the above. And yet, especially if you look at the ox herding pictures of Zen, what's the last picture it's a picture of the enlightened sage just going about his business in the marketplace, being a person, yeah. working skillfully with people down here in the realm of matter. Yeah. Ultimately, the sorcerer and the sacred magician or the mystic, if you like, they are on the same path. They are going up and down. I like to imagine it as a kind of Jacob's ladder where sorcerers and saints pass one another and perhaps nod courteously to one another as they go up and down.
0: And that harkens back to, um, to Machin again, where he yes. really does equate the sinner and the saint as these two ecstatic figures that are equally connected to the divine. There's a line in one of the Gnostic Gospels, I think it's the, I can't remember which one it is, where the Gnostic Christ tells his disciples, I will free you from the authority of death which I don't know how that was in the original Aramaic or Greek that it was written in, but I love that line because at first I thought, see the Gnostics show you how to become immortal. Yeah. But then you realize that the way it's phrased, it can mean two things. Either the Logos will free you from death so that you will live forever, which would be the kind of sorceress goal. I want my body to remain forever. I want to become, as we call them in D&D, a lich or a vampire, an undead who will not die. Or it could mean I will free you from the authority of the fear of death, right? Where suddenly you can die because you're not afraid of dying anymore. What's the difference? But like, really, if I were to put the choice to you, what do you want? To live forever bodily or to stop being afraid of death? I think the answer is pretty obvious when you think deeply about it. You know, who, well, who cares if you die, if you're not afraid of death, right? Yeah. So it's like you move through the steps. You start off wanting to be immortal, denying death, and that sends you yes. searching, questing, digging, and eventually your discoveries lead you to the realization that you, you can die. It's the smile that the empress gives Uspensky. She doesn't answer by saying what you thought was death is actually just life, you know, masquerading as death. In fact, one day you'll understand that you will never die. No, it's a smile that acknowledges the situation, but transcends it at the same time. There's like a famous psychologist. I don't know if I should name him. Because he's become controversial, but I knew him before. I know
1: know who you're talking about.
0: (laughs) But I knew him uh, briefly before any of uh, what happened. Before he became so famous, yeah, exactly. Infamous, one might say. He uh, once told me, he gave me some advice, and I think it was good advice. He said, "If you want to live a good life, do the following." He says, "Watch yourself for two weeks to a month. Just watch yourself." Find out when it is that you lose track of time. Whatever you're doing in the day-to-day, when is it? Is it gardening? Is it when you're writing? Is it when you're reading? That moment where you lose track of time and you're totally immersed in something, identify that thing. It might not be what you think it is. And then organize your life so as to do that as often as possible. He says, just doing that will transform your entire existence. And I really believe it. And I did it. And it has, you know, when do you lose track of time? When you're in a state of absolute ecstasy, when you're indulging yourself <laughs> completely. My mother's a gardener. She's like a fanatical gardener. She can't help herself. Everywhere she goes, whatever house she lives in, she will build this amazing garden. It's like fucking Edenic. She, she makes these beautiful gardens. And at one point it was to the detriment of her career. She would be gardening all the time. And she went to see a psychologist and said, I'm a compulsive gardener. And the psychologist tried. And then one day she realized, I like fucking gardening. (laughs) I'm going to do it. And she just kept doing it. And it changed her life in various ways. Throughout the show, we've been talking about magic, but really we're just talking about life. There is a Mm -hmm. left-hand path in life and there is is a right-hand path in life. And we all know that the ideal in life is to make the world a better place for everyone. The ideal in life is to discover, celebrate, and cherish the true, the good, the beautiful. That's the ideal. But there is no one way there. And therefore, we have to allow for each of us to explore the left hand to find out what it means to be good, what it means to be true, what it means to be beautiful, to discover, to indulge ourselves, to take pleasure decadently in this existence, to find out what it is that sparks us, that makes just us happy, and just to dive right into it, not knowing what we'll discover. When we do that, we lose track of time. In a sense, we feel like we're immortal because we lose sight of mortality. We lose sight of the things that, that scare us. We are being escapists, quote unquote. But we're also in that moment, briefly, transcending the fear of death. And there is a chance that in in doing that and following our passions, we might discover something we can do that achieves the three ideals, the true, the good, the beautiful, in such a way that the world becomes a better place.
1: And that is the meaning of the Empress card to me.
0: If you enjoyed this podcast, consider subscribing to Weird Studies on your favorite podcasting platform. You can also follow us on Twitter, visit the Weird Studies subreddit, and of course, support us on Patreon. Music for the podcast is composed and performed by Pierre-Yves Martel, and the show is made with the assistance of Meredith Michael. Thank you for listening.